I was thinking while you were talking, you and Sue Kim, the, the chairman of Ballets, you know, you guys should do an ASMR podcast, you know, and I think people, it's just, you, you have a very soothing voice and you and Sue would, would, would be very soothing to listen to. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I am Jason Trost, the host of the Business of Betting podcast. Today, I am joined by the CEO and co-founder of Better, Joey Levy. Welcome to the podcast, Joey. Great, great to be on. Appreciate you having me. You, your name keeps coming up and up and up, and you know, probably for for no small feat than uh, some of the people you've partnered with. But you know, I just see your name across industry news, and I'm really excited to kind of get into the weeds about what you're doing with Better. So, just for the people that in the audience that aren't familiar with your company, why don't you just set up who you are and what Better is? Sure. Yeah. So my quick background is. I got involved in the broader sports gaming category about a decade ago when I started my first business, which was a daily fantasy sports platform that I started as an undergraduate student while I was attending university. And the, the origin story around that business was I, and I started school around like 2013 and, and formally started this business in 2014. And that was around the time that FanDuel and, and DraftKings were becoming increasingly more popular and visible due to their marketing efforts in, in the United States around daily fantasy sports, which, you know, at the time was a relatively nascent product experience and in industry. And, you know, I grew up loving season-long fantasy. And when I was introduced to FanDuel and DraftKings and saw all the marketing and a lot of my friends and family members were using it, I started engaging with these products. And I thought DFS was like the best idea ever. It just made my favorite hobby significantly more engaging than, than, than it previously was. But I also felt like the product experiences were pretty overwhelming and intimidating for somebody who had never done it before. It, it, it just overall was like a little bit clunky and complicated and I felt like there was an opportunity to build like a casual fan oriented daily fantasy sports experience that would cater less to the hardcore fantasy user and more to the casual sports fan who just wanted to casually enhance their consumption of sports. So I started DraftPot to try to go after that opportunity and we launched you know, an early version of a no salary cap game format. I think our UI UX was considerably sleeker and more intuitive. And we had some initial success and business was growing, was growing nicely. We raised a couple million dollars of venture financing. And then in late 2015, early 2016, there was a lot of regulatory turmoil that hit the daily fantasy sports category in the United States. And it was difficult for us to just survive in advance and in that type of environment. We ended up exiting that that business in, in 2017, but through that experience, I was introduced to the broader global sports betting industry. And I started interacting with, you know, kind of the same sports book UI you see today, right? Like the money lines, the point spreads, the over-unders. And I remember I tried to start betting on sports and I saw like a minus 175 money line and, and that I, I didn't intuitively understand what that nobody meant. does. Nobody does. <laughs> yeah. So, and like, look, like 15 years and I'm like, I need yeah. a calculator for minus 175. 
Yeah, exactly. And it just, it, 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 and this was also around the time, like again, 2016, 2017 was around the time that Robinhood as a day trading app was becoming increasingly more ubiquitous in the United States. And, and, you know, I, I couldn't help but think that kind of what Robinhood did with respect to E-Trade, Fidelity, Charles Schwab within day trading, I felt like from a from at least a product experience, like a UI UX standpoint, somebody would do to what what I continue to describe as being like the legacy sports book experience that seems to be just generally commoditized in in the global marketplace. And that was true back then in 2016 and 2017 when I started going after this opportunity. And I think that remains true to a large extent now. But for me, my, my thesis has always been that you could build this amazing product and technology and enable micro betting on, on U.S. sports to exist, which is what we've done at SimpleBet. But if that end user experience is still too complicated and not intuitive for the mass market consumer, then you're drastically limiting the potential of that product. And I was, I've just continued, basically for a decade, I've been obsessed with this UI UX vision and building the Robin Hood of gambling from a UI UX perspective. So I was thinking through how to spin out D to C from, from simple bet, given it had to be a separate company at that point. And that's ultimately how better form came to be. We, you know, better is, is effectively the direct to consumer spin out of, of simple bet. Simple bet would, you know, join the cap table as a large shareholder. And then, but my co-founder on the business, I brought in Jake Paul, who I met around the time I was contemplating the spin out and realized that, you know, I bring this product vision and Jake brings a, a really unfair advantage on the brand awareness, brand affinity and distribution side to help us sort of hack customer acquisition, which is the biggest expense as a, as a DTC operator in many cases, depending upon your strategy, but in most cases it is. So I realize I've been talking for like 10 minutes, so I'll stop there, but that's I know, sort of you, how you I have got a great voice. I was, just, I was thinking while you were talking, you and Sue Kim, the, the chairman of Ballets, you know, you guys should do an ASMR podcast, you know, and I think people, it's just, you, you have a very soothing voice and you and Sue would, would, would be very soothing to listen to. <laughs> um, if you had to describe better in three yeah. words, let, let's try this in, like a sharper way. If you had to describe better in three words, what would you say? Gaming and media company. Okay. Um, okay. I think that's okay. That's broad. Four words, but the and is the and doesn't count. I've used better a little bit when I think when I when I first signed up. There's some you have like wampum points or something. You know you have you you have like virtual currency. Going back to your like Robin Hoodie, E Trady, you know sports books are kind of lame and old school. Like I see better, and this is my outside perspective. I'm curious to get your thoughts. But my outside perspective is like it feels like kind of a different type of it's like a different kind of game. Like you're just trying to gamify a real money gamification of like an in play second screen experience. I don't feel either in your branding or your or the product that I used anyway, maybe you have different aspects. I don't feel like Robin Hood. I feel more like Candy Crush. Like it's more of like a more of a like a social like like a lightweight game around it in play. Do you think that's a fair characterization or, or, or unfair? No, I, I think it's fair to some extent and I'm I'm actually pretty glad that you're describing it that way and it resonates with you that way because when I say Robin Hood of gambling, I say that more in the context of 
they made buying and selling stocks simple and intuitive for people who've never done it before, right? Like E-Trade was well before Robinhood, but it was too complicated for somebody who wasn't like an avid day trader. That's kind of my thesis with respect to product experience in this category, which is, you know, if you've been betting with, you know, your bookie, offshore books, flying to Las Vegas, going to the Venetian sports book, if you've been doing that for the past few decades, you know what a money line and a point spread and an over under is like this feels second nature to you. And, you know, by the way, one of our challenges will be that FanDuel and DraftKings who, you know, are, are focused on this legacy sportsbook experience right now, they're, they're spending billions of dollars to make that commoditized sportsbook experience increasingly more ubiquitous in the American market, right? Like, you know, they, I, I think it's, it, it, it's, you know, they're, they're profitably growing to some extent now, but it required a lot of capital up front to like make that more ubiquitous, I, but there's still a large incremental TAM opportunity. I think you, you have FanDuel and DraftKings. I still don't think they've surpassed 4 million MAUs, but they're in front of 95 million gambling aid sports fans. They'll be in front of closer to 200 at maturity. So I still think there's that incremental TAM opportunity when you bring up candy crush and and just it's a game like that that type of product experience is indeed more intuitive to a mass market consumer than if you were to show somebody who's never been on sports before the DraftKings sportsbook right so i resonate with that analysis and and i and i welcome it great so what's your what's your vision with better than I mean like you know we're riffing off this sort of Robin Hoodification of a of an old school industry but like I I would say the traditional model of sports betting at least in the UK and and I don't think it's so much true in the US but in the UK it's always been I mean they they make money in their sports books but a lot of big companies use sports betting as sort of lead gen for casino and, you know, iGaming isn't that widespread in the U.S., so that model is not available to people. But do you view this kind of like gamification as like lead gen to like a vanilla sports book as well? Or do you want that to be the main show or what, what's sort of your vision with the product? Yeah, I don't I don't think for, first off, you know, we're evaluating iGaming and, you know, a variety of verticals. Right now we have two verticals. We have better fantasy which is our better picks product and we have better sports book which you know you've you've used a free-to-play version of it we decided to put a free-to-play version of it live in 48 states so that people across the country can sort of get an interactive tutorial for what this differentiated product experience looks and feels like while also using it as a tool to register and onboard people for for example we you know, announced better the company and launched the media brand on August 8th of 2022. We released the app four weeks later on September 1st. We didn't have the, and then the real money gaming experience, you got to go state by state as you, as you know, so at least on the sportsbook side. So, so we launched Ohio on January 1, we launched Massachusetts in May. We didn't, and Better Picks being our first, you know, broader nationwide real money gaming experience didn't go live until July 31st of this year. So the free to play app has enabled us to, has enabled us to, to register and onboard people in lieu of, you know, not having like Better Picks live until just a couple weeks ago, for example. So we have fantasy, we have sportsbook right now. I, 
we will continue to evaluate other gaming verticals, but we are predominantly focused on ensuring that we can create standalone, compelling product experiences within sportsbook and within fantasy. And we think there's a really big opportunity to do that. Our strategy is not to launch the same commoditized sportsbook and hack customer acquisition and then use that you know, strategy to funnel into casino. Like that's not our strategy. Can we monetize in the future with casino? Maybe, right? I think there's, and, and that in and of itself, like within iGaming, I think there's opportunities to innovate on product too. But this is a product innovation focused business focused on like from, from a mission statement standpoint, we're, we're out to try to enhance the way the mass market sports fan consumes sports. That's what we're trying to do. And we think that there's a financial opportunity going after that. And, and we're already seeing it with fantasy and sportsbook. And what you see now, it shows the vision a little bit from a product standpoint, but we're nowhere near where we want to be or need to be from a product standpoint. And But I think we've done a good job of laying the foundations of the business, given we, we launched this thing. The, the entire company was launched a, a year and a week ago. And are you comfortable sharing any any customer numbers or revenue numbers of the last year? On the fantasy side, which will, you know, fantasy will will drive the majority of our revenue. I would say for the for the next year or so, just given the geographic reach that we have with fantasy, you know, under that skill based designation, you're you're just able to turn on that product in more jurisdictions. You know, the, the revenue numbers for OSB are, are public. So, you know, you, you could just go and, and check those out. And to be clear, we're, you know, we, we haven't turned on the paid UA and, and retention engine for the OSB product yet. The OSB product we have live right now is very much a beta product. I've been, you know, very public about that. We refer to the product experience that's currently live for OSB internally as V0. Five months after we launched the OSB beta product in Ohio, we acquired the Chameleon platform from Fans Unite, which will be the foundations of V1 of, of the better sports book. And the reason why we did things this way is, and, and you've probably seen this many times being in the industry for 15 years, many times if you have a D2C brand and you already have an audience, it's better to get to market quickly with a B2B platform that you don't fully control, but you get to market quickly with a B2B platform. But I think the mistake that many people made soon after PASPA was repealed was they assumed that Sportsbook is this commoditized thing. So you you stay with the B2B commoditized platform for too long. And by the way, the same platform everybody else is using in many cases, you stay with that for too long and you're trying to win off of like customer acquisition and bonusing strategy or some sort of like market access advantage. But we wanted to launch quickly to start registering and onboarding and familiarizing our audience with this differentiated product experience. But we had a plan nearly right away to get our own product and technology, learn from that beta launch, and then launch V1 of the Better Sportsbook, which will still feature that, you know, trademark simple and intuitive UI UX. We'll still have a, a strong focus on micro betting but we'll also have 
our takes on the money lines, the point spreads, the over-unders, futures, parlays, same game parlays. So that will have product parity with, with, you know, the other operators to a large extent. So I say all of that to, to say the, you know, the market share, we're, we're not playing the market share game at all for OSB right now, but for strategic reasons, we wanted to get our OSB business live in multiple jurisdictions while establishing our leadership position in responsible gaming too. You know, we're the only operator to voluntarily and proactively ban credit cards as a method of depositing. We restrict the amount young consumers, 21 to 25 years old, are able to deposit on a monthly basis. We 21 plus both for OSB and for fantasy, which is also a first in, 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 in this market. So we wanted to do all of that. You know, and then and 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 then exhibit uh, a little bit more commercialism over time with with the launch of you know better picks in in twenty four jurisdictions, and then and, and while while in parallel really building out the real sportsbook experience that'll go live in the first half of of twenty twenty four, and and you know then then we'll feel a little bit more comfortable going after market share more aggressively than than we have right now. But there's there's been effectively no paid UA no paid retention on the OSB business so far. And that's reflected in, you know, the, the, that, that's, a, that's as a result of the strategy of not really going after market share for OSB at this time. It's cool. You don't, you don't have to apologize. I mean, uh, we, we've taken a similar, similar approach in the U.S. It's been such a, you know, it takes such a long time to get product market fit that it's, it's usually a smart thing. You, you know, you want to make sure that you've nailed that before you go and spend money on that. And especially if you have a sort of, you know, another profitable business model that, that works for you. It, it definitely can make sense to tweak, tweak things. So I'm curious about the Fans Unite. As far as I understand, it was a source, um, uh, um, the source code deal, and you know, we we're a B two C company. We naively or presciently, presciently, am I saying that right? Presciently, by accident. For for <laughs> my vocabulary today is is soft. Um, but either naively or on purpose, uh, built everything ourselves, and um, you know, we've thought about being on the other side of the source code deal because it's an interesting way to kind of monetize the stuff you've built. I'm curious what it's like being on your side of the fence. Like you just buy this thing. Like, is it a pain in the ass? Does it work well? Is it, you know, what's it like trying to deal with somebody else's code? I mean, it's very normal in engineering circles. I mean, every time somebody reads somebody else's code, they always usually say this is shit and don't want to deal with it. But what, what, what's your take on, on how that's gone? Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the, and, and to clarify, it wasn't like, I don't, I don't think I was apologizing. I think it was more just like explaining the strategy because it's yes, very yes, thoughtful yes, yes. and methodical. Um, I'm um, being hyperbolic. I think, being yeah. Bold. With respect to your question. Yeah, no, you're, no, you're good, man. Just wanted to clarify that with respect to the acquisition, you know, one of the benefits of the approach that I just went through in terms of why we've sequenced execution the way we've sequenced it is this v0 product the betting engine is from simple bet but the pam was from fans unite right so we actually had an opportunity to use this technology prior to acquiring it and to work with this team prior to inheriting this team so we had a unique level of visibility and comfort with the technology that we were acquiring, perhaps more so than 
you know, many other operators who've gone in and got, gone on to, to buy B2B platforms. So we, we had that level of comfort and visibility, obviously did all the things that you need to do in terms of, you know, investing in, in auditing the, the technology to ensure that, you know, everything is as, as represented. And, you know, we're, we're quite satisfied with, with the acquisition so far, the transition, both from a, from a technology standpoint and a operational and, and, and team standpoint has been, you know, vastly exceeding our expectations in, 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 in a very positive way. And I think to your point of like, you, cause, cause you kind of alluded to this a little bit, like maybe naively going in and building your own technology and doing it that way. Like what, what we realized is there's a lot of this, I talk about the need for, um, you know, the product experience to not be like commoditized sports book from a UI UX perspective, but there is a lot of like table stakes, commoditized work that goes into a betting engine and a PAM and like that work just needs to get done and it's complex and it's time consuming and you could build the innovation on top of that. But it's not what, what, what I realized is, is it's not the best use of our time and resources to try to do that over again ourselves. And we could just get that off the shelf and own that part and focus our, you know, finite, precious time and engineering and product resources on the areas that could really drive differentiation and innovation for our business. Awesome. My seven month old is crying. I need to take a quick 30 second break and just go grab her for No, a you're good. I'll man. be right back. Yeah, yeah, go, go, go do that. Cool. Bob, 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 Bob. Okay, cool. Let, let's pivot to Jake Paul because he's quite a famous, you know, name and he's quite a famous influencer and his boxing and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm a big fan of the All In podcast and David Friedberg, I, I don't want to say like a year ago, he thought that one of the sort of partnerships or acquisitions of the year was Penn National buying Barstool because he said one of the futures of business is basically um, uh, aligning really good content with highly profitable business models. And I'm kind of interested to get your feedback on how that works for you. And also vis-a-vis, you know, very uh, timely Barstool has been given back to Mr. Portnoy. So I was curious, like, what's your comment on sort of Freeberg's hypothesis that content married with a, a good business model is, is sort of the, like a future winner in business? Yeah, I actually remember that clip. I didn't see the entire episode, but I saw that clip and I actually included that clip in one of my early shareholder updates because I thought if you remember the clip, he described Sportsbook as this commoditized thing. And he was describing, okay, Sportsbook is commoditized. So the way you win is by innovating on distribution. And Barstool has brand awareness and brand affinity and it's a genius acquisition, right? Like that was basically his perspective. And I think the biggest problem with that perspective as I've probably spent too much time talking about already is that I think sportsbook is not this commoditized thing, or at least it shouldn't be, right? Like, because if, if, if you're playing the commoditized sportsbook game, FanDuel and DraftKings are going to win. 
they're so far advanced from a product and technology standpoint, you know, while, while you're working on bolting on your initial SGP solution, they're working on SGP plus, 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 right. They're, they got a lot more money. It's a scale business. They're going to bonus more. Like that's not the way I think you can win in this category, right? Like, you know, bar, the barstool users were, you know, they like barstool, but if Barstool's bonus offering on the same suboptimal version of FanDuel is less than FanDuel, and at FanDuel you get more bonus money, and you have a better version of that same commoditized sportsbook, you could be a hardcore stoolie, but you're still going to use FanDuel to get more bonus money and have a better experience with what's ultimately a very similar product experience. So that's my very quick perspective on that. I, I would distill... I've put a lot of thought into, as you can imagine, when when I was initially going out and raising money for for better in late 2021, early 2022, one of the most common questions I got was, "What's your perspective on Penn Barstool?" Right, and and I would typically distill my perspective down into three buckets. One is related to product, and I always felt like they did not do enough to differentiate on product. They were using the same Canby Sportsbook that Bet Rivers is using, Bet Parks is using, many other DDC operators are using. And it's it's, it's actually kind of wild to think where you they launched Barstool Sportsbook in September of 2020, and they only migrated onto their own product and technology that they inherited as part of the score acquisition right after the all-star break of 2023. So Barstool Sportsbook actually never even had the opportunity to differentiate on product. So that's point one. Point two is related to marketing. And what I've realized in this in this category, is, as you probably realize too, as a DTC operator, is that some level of user bonus incentives is table stakes. Some paid user acquisition strategy to some extent is table stakes. It's amazing to have an organic media audience that you can convert to product, but solely relying upon that in the absence of the table stakes paid UA and retention, in my opinion, is a short-sighted strategy that I think ultimately hurt Penn Barstool. Furthermore, the paid, or sorry, the organic media audience should almost be treated in some respects as a way to hack best-in-class CAC efficiency for your paid UA and retention strategy, because you have this like halo effect around your brand. If they put more paid UA dollars behind Barstool Sportsbook and you're scrolling on Twitter and you see Barstool Sportsbook, you may be more inclined to convert because they've invested so much in developing that brand to begin with. Furthermore, content could arguably be an even more effective retention tool than an acquisition tool. So I don't know if there was enough uh, of a strategy around paid UA and retention. And then the third bucket is operationally and culturally. And this is where I think actually Penn is worse off than they were before because with Barstool, they they acquired Barstool Sports. They own that company. Now, with that said, you had Penn Interactive working in one place, doing their own thing, also exhibiting a lack of control over their own product because they were, you know, beholden to Canby. And then in New York, you have the content creators, the media company, and it, it just, it never seemed like it was a cohesive, united front 
from a product development and distribution standpoint. Whereas if you want to juxtapose that with, with what we're doing at Better, for example, if you're a U.S.-based full-time employee, you are required to relocate to Miami. We have a 20,000-square-foot warehouse that we work out of. We have media on one side. We have gaming on the other side. When we have product development meetings, we have content creators and media people in those meetings. When we have meetings related to how do we most efficiently convert audience to product, we have product people in that in those meetings. It's it's one team, it's one culture, it's highly collaborative and, and integrated. And, and I think you need that to 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 ensure you extract the maximum level of value from from both sides of the house. So saying what you just said there, just like. I mean, I'm going to put words into your mouth, but let's debate it a little bit. What do you think is going to happen with the ESPN deal? Do you think Penn's going to screw that up if they don't really have the the right playbook for doing content? I I just I think it's going to be really challenging to get the type of ROI they're looking for. I mean, I like off of a two billion dollar investment into a brand licensing deal. You know, I I I would be totally naive to say that ESPN bet is not going to be a formidable competitor to some extent. I mean, ESPN as a brand is synonymous with sports in America. All I'm saying is that there are real, there are going to be real operational challenges and there's a lot of open questions. For example, on the product side, we're assuming that the platform or the product rather that they released, you know, four weeks ago, via the score acquisition that's that's i think it's probably safe to assume that that's going to be the foundations of espn bet that does not seem to be a highly differentiated product experience within this world of legacy sportsbook so from a product standpoint i'm skeptical that it'll be competitive with fanduel and DraftKings in that world from a marketing standpoint i think penn has publicly said that they over the past year or so that they would put more investment into paid UA and retention, but I'm assuming a $2 billion commitment to ESPN probably modifies that calculus a little bit. So I don't know if they're going to be sufficiently aggressive on that front. And then on the, on the third piece, like I kind of alluded to a couple minutes ago, like operationally and culturally, this is going to be even more challenging because Penn doesn't own ESPN. I mean, ESPN is is still going to advertise other sports books. Their their talent are you know Pat McAfee, Stephen A. Smith. Do they get direct financial ownership of Penn? Like, what's their incentive to promote ESPN Bet or to tweet about ESPN Bet? The you know m- many of the, the the people that that work for ESPN, they're journalists. They're not content creators, right? So there's a lot of and, and the incentives are a little bit out of whack to some extent, right? Like you have, you know, they talk about the half a billion dollars in warrants. I think that represents 0.3% of Disney's market cap. Like everybody on my senior leadership team owns more of better than Disney can potentially own of Penn for, for context. So those are just some of the open questions and challenges. I don't want to, I'm not sitting here saying they're going to fail, right? Like, and and nor am I necessarily rooting for them to like, (laughs) these are smart pen barstool ESPN. They've accomplished a hell of a lot more than better has, right? I'm just saying these are some of the open questions and, and challenges I think they may face. 
Yeah, I guess I, I don't want to throw rocks in the cheap seats either. But like for my, I had a bet with somebody internally. He thinks the ESPN deal is going to be great for for Penn. I I, I kind of take the the under in that bet. I, I I just think just slapping an ESPN logo on the Canby platform isn't going to be that compelling. So what's your goal with better? You 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 have a decent amount of deference and respect for DraftKings, FanDuel, you know, because they're like at scale and, you know, they've got the machine working and they're close to profitability. Like, is your goal to kind of compete with them um, by starting like with fantasy and unique betting products and kind of work your up at the chain? Do you want to be a large niche business? Do you want to make your money in fantasy or what, 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 where do you want to take the business? Yeah, it is super high level. We're, we're going for you know, a, 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 a very large IPO. We, we want to build a $10 billion plus publicly traded company. We think we're right in terms of our product vision being rooted in really two core things. One is ensuring all of the UI UX with any product we design, whether it's fantasy, whether it's sports book, whether it's potentially casino, whatever it may be is simple and intuitive enough for anybody who's never been on sports before to be able to intuitively interact with it and be entertained and engaged when they're interacting with it. Going back to sort of your candy crush analogy, like that, that, that resonates well with, with what we're trying to accomplish. And then the, the second piece of the product vision being an emphasis on micro betting and instant gratification betting, which is a uniquely strong product for the U.S. sports fan because of the cadence and composition of U.S. sports being very stop and start, moment to moment, a lot of scoring and a lot of speculation over players and what they'll do next. On the distribution side, to get back to some of your earlier comments, I do think that marketing and customer acquisition is moving more to a creator-led model. Consumers trust creators nowadays just as much, if not more so than brands themselves. So I think we're right on the media side, original and short form video built for TikTok, but something that could scale nicely to other platforms. You're seeing that as becoming the future of, of content consumption with Instagram demonstrating that through their, their, their IG Reels product with you know Twitter coming out and wanting to be more video focused and creator led. So my point is, I think across both product and distribution, we are right. And I think being right in this category, as you know, is a very, that's a very big company 10 years from now, right? My job is I just got to survive in advance and, and methodically sequence execution to get to that North Star. And I think we've been doing a good, a good job of that so far. Well, I hope you survive. Like I've said to a lot of the startups on this podcast, you know, I hope you succeed because there's like, in sports betting, there's just not enough new blood. And, you know, it's, it's, it's becoming true in the US and it's definitely been true the last 20 years in the UK where it's just the barriers to entry. You know, it's not a normal startup. You need legal, you need real money, you need licenses. A lot of people don't want to invest in the space. So it's, it's really tough to get going as a, as a startup entrepreneur. And I, I wish you the best. And, and the industry, frankly, needs it. The, it needs more new thinking and new approaches. And we need less of Ladbrokes and William Hill and Bet365 and more betters and sport trades and profits and other people trying to do things uh, that are new and interesting. Um, before I let you go, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I mean, I, I've 
I've, I don't know. I mean, I've never, I haven't gotten that question since I was a kid. I, I mean, I, I like what I'm doing now a lot and I, I've kind of become obsessed with just winning in this category. That's really what I want to do. I've been, I'm, I'm a young entrepreneur. I, I, I turned 28 a few months ago, but I've been doing this almost for a decade now. And I've effectively been working towards solving the same problem or a very similar problem. And I, I, I just, I just want to win. It's, it's not even totally about money anymore. It, it, I think it's more about just winning in this category. Great. Well, thanks very much for stopping by the pod and I wish you the best of luck. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me.